This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, two old friends of the show return. Ben Goldacre talks about his book, I Think You'll Find It's a Bit More Complicated Than That. And then Eric Schlosser gives us an update on the past year in nuclear weapons. Ben Goldacre is a doctor, academic, broadcaster and science writer who has made his name unpicking the evidence behind dodgy claims from journalists, politicians, quacks and drug companies. His bad science column ran in The Guardian from 2003 to 2011. His first book, Bad Science, was a number one bestseller, selling over half a million copies and was translated into 25 languages. His second book, Bad Farmer, triggered two parliamentary committees and a global campaign to stop drug trial results being withheld from doctors and patients. His latest book is a collection of essays. I think you'll find it's a bit more complicated than that. So, Ben, welcome back to Little Atoms. First of all, it's been a while since you've been on. Yeah, thanks for having me. We're going to talk about... I think it's a a little bit more complicated than that. I probably got that title wrong. I think you'll find it's a bit more complicated than that. It's a bit more factual than you first said. (laughs) But um, let's have a quick catch-up, first of all, about what's been going on since Bad Farmer was published. I just mentioned there a couple of parliamentary committees. And specifically, I want to talk to you about the All Trials campaign that came off of the back of the book. So what's been happening since? Well, so it was kind of interesting because it's been a, a real learning experience of... You know, in the past, I've tried to change things by sitting in my underpants with a laptop on the sofa, writing angry screeds on my own. And All Trials is really the first time outside of day job work that I've tried federating. And it's been incredible, I have to say. And it it all grew out of um, really one man called Stephen Whitehead, who's the head of the Association of the British Pharmaceutical Industry, so the, the UK pharma industry lobbying group. And after Bad Pharma came out, and it is mostly about drug companies withholding the results of trials from doctors, researchers, and patients. After it came out, I was expecting a kind of serious discussion and a kind of serious policy engagement. But instead, what I got was a series of extraordinary sort of smears and dismissals, including, for example, this chap, Stephen Whitehead, sort of sent bizarre, nasty comments on email, for example, saying he's a fringe maverick ignored by everyone in the medical, academic, regulatory and policy Mm -hmm. community and we're not even going to engage with him in public and all of that kind of stuff. So firstly, I mean, I get a lot of smears. I get smears from anti-vaxxers and quacks and they say I'm in the pay of pharma and pharma smear me in different ways. But I suppose to be childish, if the first thing that happens after you send smeary comments about me is that they're forwarded straight on to me with the mm-hmm. subject heading lol, then you're just not very good at your job, right? You're just not very good at smearing people. But secondly, I kind of thought, well, actually, maybe this isn't going to work if it's just me shouting. And lots and lots and lots of people have tried to get this problem fixed in the past. So I basically just got in touch with everyone I could think of, from Ian Chalmers, founder of the Cochrane Collaboration, Fiona Godley, editor of the BMJ, a few academics... And first of all, we put together a letter to the Times, which is everybody's pompous first step in a campaign, saying this is a real problem. Drug trial results are withheld from doctors, researchers and patients. We need to do something about it. We need to fix it. Got that signed by editors of the BMJ and the Lancet and presidents of Royal Colleges and all that sort of stuff. And then Simon Singh, who is lovely and also sold more books than me, gave five grand as sort of seed funding to Sense About Science to set up a proper campaign. And they're really organised and on the case, Mm -hmm. Sense About Science. So we set out our manifesto which is very simple you basically when you sign up to the alltrials.net campaign you say four things you say this is a problem that trials are withheld it's it's affecting patient care we think all trials should be registered so we know what's happened we think all results should be reported Mm -hmm. in summary form whether it's an academic paper or whatever and whenever a clinical study report which is a very long and detailed document that shows you really where the methodological flaws in a trial are the things that stop it being a fair test of which treatment is best whenever a clinical study report has been published that should be made publicly available without the identifiable individual patient data from it and it just snowballed and went absolutely crazy overnight practically like a really really soon after we started 80 patient groups all signed up in Mm -hmm. one go. So they'd had a kind of secret meeting to discuss it, which was also kind of nice and a bit moving because some of them I'd had some confrontations (laughs) with, it's fair to say, because of things I'd written in the book about pharma about drug companies paying patient groups and patient groups often taking drug companies' sides. But they really played a blinder. And from that moment on, it was patients leading professionals And that is an amazing thing, really, on what I think is, without question, probably the single most important flaw in 
the information architecture of evidence-based medicine, right? The mm-hmm. best currently available evidence shows that, on average, if you follow trials up that have been completed, the chances of getting published are only 50-50. Trials with positive results are about twice as likely to be published as trials with less flattering results. So this is a real problem. And so... Patients groups dived in, and before we knew it, we had pretty much every royal college in the country signed up. In fact, I think we have got all of them now. But also Medical Research Council, Welcome, NICE, ICWIG, the German equivalent of NICE, European Public Health Association. I mean, it's really snowballed. We're about to launch in the US. We've been really successful in lobbying in Europe, and it's not about me I mean, it seems ridiculous to say that, but because why would you think it was? But I think what's nice is it's on a personal level when people say, can you talk about this? Can you come and do our conference? Can you come and do this event in Brussels or something? I no longer feel guilty that I can't take a day of annual leave mm-hmm. and go and do it because there's a ton of other people. Mm-hmm. But also we're really organised and when people try and smear you or shut you up or marginalise you, it's basically not really possible anymore. And that's a really great really interesting funny thing and what's i mean what is the aim what's going to happen next would you like to see happen next and what has happened so what we want is for full methods and results of all clinical trials on all uses of all currently prescribed treatments to be made publicly available now the trials of the past actually arguably matter more than the trials of the last two years Mm -hmm. and of the future because 85% of all prescriptions in the UK are for treatments that came on the market more than 10 years ago because we're actually very good at prescribing generic drugs, drugs that are off patent in the UK. And that's not going to change in a hurry, probably, because... Actually, the real blockbuster drugs of today, the antihypertensives, the blood pressure drugs, the statins, the antidepressants, the drugs that are taken by millions and millions of people Mm -hmm. are from this, what's often characterised as a golden age of discovery of these real mass market blockbuster drugs. And actually, people are a bit mistaken about the changing characteristics of of innovation in the pharmaceutical industry. Mm -hmm. Just saying that word makes me feel like I'm at some terrible corporate environment conference. So people sometimes say the number of new drugs being developed is dropping year by year. That's actually not true. It's Mm -hmm. pretty much stable. But what is changing is the size of the market for each drug. So the drugs that are coming to market now tend to be for much smaller populations. So instead of big drugs for everybody with blood pressure, Mm -hmm. you're seeing drugs for some obscure kind of cancer or third-line treatment for multiple sclerosis. Now, that's produced an interesting set of new reimbursement squabbles. Essentially, when you see drug companies now having fights with NICE about Mm -hmm. whether it's okay for them to charge 65,000 quid a year for a new drug, what you're seeing is not just a squabble over the price of that one drug, you're seeing an entire industry trying to reframe the norms around what they can expect Mm -hmm. to be paid for a new treatment. But... There's also another impact of that shift in the kinds of drugs that are coming to market now, which is all of the blood pressure drugs, the statins, the antidepressants, the drugs taken by millions of people that we're using now, we're probably going to continue using for a really long time. Mm -hmm. So that's why it really matters that we get the clinical trial results from the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And they're all still out there one way or another some of them won't be in such great formats some of them will be buried in dry document storage archives in the chalk hills of cheshire but that's what we need and that's deliverable and furthermore you know industry was saying even 22 years ago industry first got in ian chalmers the founder of cochrane which is the kind of gold standard summaries of medical evidence organization and they promised him 22 years ago oh, we're going to stop hiding drug trial results, we're going to share everything, it's all going to be fixed from now on. And now, in 2014, they're saying, oh, we're really sorry, you know, we we agree we should fix this, we'll Mm -hmm. we'll try and fix it from now, but I don't, trials from five years ago, that's going to be very difficult to find. So even after they'd promised to share, they were cheerfully hiding, shredding mislaying and that's not okay so what needs to happen is we need to get all of the old stuff and we need clear legislation that firstly delivers that and secondly delivers all trials in the future and it's not just legislation so we've also got a big project which i think has just been funded which is going to do audits of how much is missing so that means we'll be able to tell you for the first time ever well you know out of all the trials that have been done on this drug and this drug 18 trials and 2200 patients worth of data have been published but actually 32 trials were done in total and there's 1400 patients worth of data missing and if all of this data was the same as the worst data this is what it would look like and the following drug companies are the best and the worst for hiding data the following countries are the best and the worst the following principal investigators are the best and the worst for hiding data so using audit which is the most boring straightforward easy data tool that we use in Mm -hmm. medicine to make sure that our infection rates are okay or that our waiting times aren't too long using audit to drive up standards on publication 
I'm Rachel Cook, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's move on to the book then. I think you'll find it's a bit more complicated than that, which, as I said, it's a collection, and it's it's basically a, a collection of your work to date from various places, mainly from the, the Bad Science column, but from other places as well, and some interesting ephemera, which we'll, perhaps we'll get onto later on in the show. And so, I mean, it's split into sections that are sort of roughly cover some of your preoccupations. preoccupations. <laughs> yes, some of your preoccupations. So... I thought rather than as look at in detail at perhaps a, you know an essay you wrote in 2011 about something, we could look more closely at the preoccupation and what it means and, and bring in some examples from the chapter. The first section is called How Science Works. So we're going to look at some of the ways in which science works. So one, of your, one of your big preoccupations, you've already mentioned the Cochrane collaboration a little while ago, so let's talk about the idea of the systematic review, what it is and why it's important. A systematic review. I guess the best way to explain a systematic review is to explain what we did before systematic Mm -hmm. reviews came along. So up until the late 1980s, say, if you were writing, I don't know, a, a textbook chapter or a review article for a medical academic journal on the treatment of depression in patients who also have serious physical illnesses, you would say, well, I can remember a couple of trials on this that I've already seen, so you'll put those in the box Mm -hmm. file. You'll go, well, I can remember... um, Actually, I went to a couple of conferences where something was mentioned about that, so I'll get in touch with my friends. I'll keep my ears open at any conferences I go to in the future. I'll flick back through the back issues of the journals, the medical journals that I happen to already subscribe to. So doctors often, you know, if you're a member of the British Medical Association, you get the British Medical journal for free and basically all that really means is it piles up in the toilet until you ask your partner do i need to take these out of the plastic wrapping before i take them to recycling but they're there right they're accessible and using this completely ad hoc and scattergun approach you'll gather together a few examples of trials that you think should probably be included in your mm-hmm. review and then when the time comes to meet the deadline, you write it up and then that gets published as a textbook chapter in a medical textbook or a review article in a medical academic journal. And then that becomes canonical. That becomes mm-hmm. the Bible for the management of that condition. Now, the problem with that method is it's vulnerable to all kinds of biases. So most obviously it's it's vulnerable to deliberate rigging. Right? Mm-hmm. You might have a massive personal prejudice for financial or ideological reasons or just arbitrary personal preference that one treatment is the best. And so you'll reflect that by deliberately cherry-picking the research. But it's also vulnerable to all kinds of other biases, not just the unconscious version of what I just described, but also trials with more dramatic and more flattering results tend to be more likely to be published, more likely to appear in the more glamorous journals with the higher impact factors, Mm -hmm. so the ones that you're more likely to have piling up in your toilet, and more likely to be remembered, more likely to be cited. And so... That completely arbitrary hodgepodge produces a very biased overview of the literature. So, in the late 1980s, they were done very, very rarely before that, suddenly this new idea was invented in a systematic review. And a systematic review is a piece of science about how you look for Mm -hmm. science. So you describe the indexes and the searchable databases that you're going to go to. You describe even the search terms that you type in. You, You specify precisely the inclusion and exclusion criteria for the trials that you're going to include. So you specify the age range and exactly what interventions you're looking at and exactly what outcomes you're interested in the measurement of. And then having got absolutely every single trial that has ever been done, including chasing up references at the back and contacting people to ask them about missing data and even typing in foreign language searches in indices, so, you know, trial and placebo controlliert or whatever it is in German. And then finally, you get this total perfect, ideally, or as close as it can be, or at least a representative sample, list of the trials that have been done Mm -hmm. on that subject to date. Then you add up all of the main effects in one big spreadsheet, effectively, and you produce something called a systematic review. And Mm -hmm. that is the best summary that can possibly be generated of the currently available evidence. Now, when you talk to the general public about problems in science and medicine, it's really interesting seeing what freaks people out. Mm -hmm. And obviously, people are freaked out that Drug companies are perfectly legally allowed to withhold the results of clinical trials, of course. Not freaked out, they're annoyed about it, but they're not hugely surprised. They're bothered by all kinds of problems that you can describe. But actually, in my experience, the thing that really freaks people out more than anything else is, fucking hell, you seriously only invented the idea of not cherry-picking evidence in the late 1980s. Like, what were you doing before that? And it is extraordinarily recent, mm-hmm. really. It is an, an incredible thing. Is it anything to do with just a, uh, at some point that available data must have just 
got there must have just been more of it. I mean, perhaps in the past there just wasn't as much right. data to go through. Sure. So first big trial, really the first big sort of modern trials, and you could argue the toss about this, but started really in the forties, big streptomycin trial. Mm-hmm. And from then on, I guess you're right. Maybe it was a bit like the library in Alexandria or whatever. You know, mm. you kind of knew that you could list the number of trials yeah. that had ever been there done. There would have been doctors who had read everything that had ever been published <laughs> yeah, up until maybe. that point. I think that's a fair point. <laughs> and so, yeah, you're right. To an extent, our methods had to catch up with our, uh, with our output. Mm-hmm. I think also, I mean, it's kind of interesting how, how late on trials in any case started being done. But it's also maybe a reflection of the fact that medicine shifted over the course of the last few decades from hoping to treat things that were pretty black and white, like you're, you're totally going to die mm-hmm. and here's something that might save you or is massively going to save you, shifting towards modest improvements which require better quality trial design mm. to accurately detect them. And that's actually that's reflected in what is arguably the kind of first big famous modern trial, which is the streptomycin trials. Mm-hmm. So streptomycin for TB. Streptomycin had only just been invented. It was 1948, and we only had 50 kilos of it in the UK. So we didn't have very much to go around. And two interesting things arose from that. Firstly, in America, it was just for sale on the open market. Anyone who wanted to could buy it. In England, the MRC could get away with, in an era of rationing, I think, after World War II, in a sense that everyone's in it together, could get away with saying... Actually, we're only going to release this in the context of randomised trials. Mm -hmm. And they didn't do that for treating uh, cerebral TB. So if you've got TB in your brain, you're basically massively going to die. And so if any treatment stops you dying, then that treatment's great. It Mm -hmm. works because you were definitely going to die. So if we give you streptomycin and you don't die, streptomycin works. You don't need a big trial to do that. Mm -hmm. You don't need a a big randomised trial to see if a parachute saves you when you jump out of an aeroplane, mm-hmm. right? You could probably do that with about four people in a trial and maybe even arguably just two. Two people. <laughs> yeah. So you could argue, I think, that as time has passed and we've tried to detect more subtle effects, maybe we've needed to have more and more accurate methods. And so to finish the, the explanation, streptomycin for chest TB, for mm-hmm. tuberculosis pneumonia, you really do need to do a trial because actually a lot of people with pneumonia don't die. They become pale and slender mm-hmm. in the manner of a romantic poet. They go and live in the hills in Switzerland and then they come back and all is well Mm -hmm. right so if you want to detect modest differences in survival then you need more accurate methods but scaled up to whole populations of course even relatively modest Mm -hmm. benefits can have a huge impact on population health and added all together all of those smaller benefits add up to dramatic increases in life expectancy so for example I mean, this is more relevant to us than it was when we first met. If you're a middle-aged man, Mm -hmm. right, your chances of dying before the age of 70 have roughly halved over the course of the last few decades. Mm -hmm. But that's not because of any single amazing epoch-making breakthrough. Mm -hmm. That's because of a gradual accumulation of a huge number of very modest shifts in the risks and benefits of Mm -hmm. different interventions and, and health exposures. So little effects matter. So I think you're probably right, and I hadn't thought of it. Maybe systematic reviews were only really invented partly, as you say, because there was more stuff to be collated and partly because we were trying to detect smaller effects. We're talking then of a systematic review of data that's in medical medical journals, the medical literature. What if you've got, you know, some sort of amazing idea, amazing theory that you just you just don't bother publishing in a journal? You might be a baroness or something. You might not feel you need to. Yeah, that's true. So you're absolutely right. What's really interesting is, as is often the case, I think, medicine, perhaps because the stakes are a little bit higher, tends to be a little bit further ahead of the curve especially for looking at these structural issues Mm -hmm. compared with the rest of the scientific community and if you look at other fields of science what you find is that publication bias the problem of studies with negative results going missing in action is absolutely rife and there's a ton of examples in the book so things like if you look at the brain imaging literature which journalists absolutely Mm -hmm. love the stuff that says oh we've discovered that people who don't like the sound of fingernails being scraped on chalkboards have got a different sized auditory part of the brain or all Mm -hmm. of that kind of nonsense when you look at that all together you add it all up in one place you can do various different statistical analyses and basically show that they are reporting about twice as many positive results from those studies as you could possibly have realistically have expected to detect Mm -hmm. with the number of people that they have scanned if they're being honest with you about their statistics. Mm -hmm. So what that tells you is that they are definitely being sneaky. They're either discarding scans where they don't get the answer they want or discarding whole studies where they don't Mm -hmm. get the answer they want. Or more than that, they are measuring 20 different outcomes like 
being depressed, mm-hmm. being really into computer games, being, uh, you know, having a high number of sexual partners, being unusually vulnerable to pain, whatever. Measured a huge number of outcomes like that and then tried to correlate them with a huge number of anatomical measurements mm-hmm. in the brain. And then whichever one happens to pop up as a correlation, they are reporting. And they're reporting that as if they'd specifically set out to interrogate just that one single hypothesis, mm-hmm. that this part of the brain being enlarged is associated with being more likely to be depressed. There's a reason why that's cheating, and it's because our statistical tests that we use assume that you're just having one go mm-hmm. at looking for a correlation. So it's a bit like the game on the seafront, you know, where the guy's got three cups and there's a ball underneath one of them, and he wiggles the cups around and tries to confuse you, and you put down a fiver... And if you correctly guess which cup has a ball underneath it, you get back Mm -hmm. £15 in total. That only works if you only look under one cup, right? If you look under two cups, that's cheating. That's breaking the thing. And it's exactly the same with statistical tests. So by doing research about research, which I think is kind of the most interesting kind of research being done at the Mm -hmm. moment, you can detect patterns like that, which demonstrate that people are hiding unflattering data throughout the whole of science. But also you can identify that people are repeatedly, for example, using inappropriate statistical tests. And that's kind of what I find interesting is I've churned out hundreds, like probably about a thousand articles over the course of the last 10 or 15 years. But what I consistently find fascinating is that everybody misuses science. Every part of society, teachers, doctors, academics, government, PR people, ministers, Mm -hmm. journalists, they all misuse science in fundamentally the same ways. It's just that they differ in their degree of sophistication that they're willing to put into it. And that's kind of what's nice. And and it's nice because it means that you can... um, It's nice because it means you can basically teach the whole of epidemiology and research methods and statistics using only examples of people deliberately getting, or sometimes uh, unintentionally, getting stuff wrong. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny and I'm talking to Ben Goldacre and we're talking about his book. I think you'll find it's a bit more complicated than that. And Ben, just to carry on where we've just left off. Do you mean just then or 10 years ago? Well, both, because we did say we weren't going to look at at detailed examples. But one of the ones I had written down was an example of this not publishing data thing is the cod liver oil. Cod liver oil being some sort of um, wonder substance that we definitely talked about on your first appearance on Little Atoms back in 2005. There's a couple of chapters on that in this book, or at least obviously the original articles, which you you end up with a little a little footnote at the end. So perhaps you can you can tell us what that says in that you're looking at it. It's just it's just funny because it's really fatuous, isn't it? But um, it really matters that you get access to the full methods and results of a piece of research, right? Because it's not just enough to read a one sentence description of what the researcher says they've done, because there are often methodological shortcomings that stop something being a fair test of mm-hmm. which treatment is best or whether their intervention really, really works. And um, years and like o- over 10 years ago, I wrote about this cod liver oil study that got pushed in like the BBC and the Independent and they were calling it a wonder drug. And I can't remember, what did they say? They're not yet saying it can help you stop a bullet or leap tall buildings. But it's not far short of that, said the Independent. So I wrote to them at the time and they said, oh, well, you know, it's very difficult, but we can't, so we haven't quite finished the research, so we can't send it to you. And I hassled them again and they were really patronising and horrible and said, um, Mr Goldacre, which is interesting, is quite right in asserting that scientists have to be very certain of their facts before making public statements or publishing data. But because of that, Professor Caitlinson and my laboratory are continuing to work on samples. I'm afraid this takes a long time, and much longer than journalists or public relations firms often realise. So I regret he'll have to be patient before Professor Caitlinson or myself are prepared to comment in detail. So yeah, I put a little note in my my Google calendar for uh, 2014, which was 10 years that I hope gave them long enough. Yeah, and they haven't published it yet. I don't think anybody comes out of that looking very good, really, do they? (laughs) 
Okay, so listeners will know, obviously, that you're, um, you know, you're a best-selling author of numerous books, a long-term columnist in the Guardian. But obviously, they also know you're, you're a doctor. But we don't necessarily know very much about what you do. And one of the things that you talk about in this book, epidemiology, is basically your day job. So let's look at epidemiology through an example. We will look at one of the examples, and you can use that example to tell us what epidemiology is. And I'd like to look at the example of the bicycle helmet example. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's an article in the book that you, um, you co-wrote with David Spiegelhalter that was um, an editorial in the British Medical Journal. So that's probably a good, a good example to talk through what we mean by epidemiology. Sure. So epidemiology is the science of how we know if something works or doesn't work, how we know if something's good for you or bad for you. It's the science of population health. And it's really puzzling to me, actually, that it doesn't... that that word means nothing to most of the general public because pretty much easily half, I would say, of all science, certainly half of all health headlines in mainstream media are basically about epidemiological research. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, potatoes are good for you, GM food is bad for you, this drug works, this drug's terrible. It all comes down to epidemiology and to the five or six basic research techniques like observational studies, case control, cohort studies, randomised trials, systematic reviews, funnel plots, that kind of stuff. And because of that gap, I suppose I've been quite lucky because... I, I just don't, but I mean, basically, I don't understand why there aren't a hundred pop epidemiologists out there trying to explain this stuff to people all the time. And the bicycle helmets example, which we did as an editorial in the BMJ, I think is is a really interesting example because bicycle helmets illustrate almost all of the challenges in trying to establish causation between Mm -hmm. an intervention and an outcome. So, first of all, when you look at people who've had horrible head injuries in hospitals and then you get a control group of people who haven't had horrible head injuries and then you look at whether or not they were wearing bike helmets, that's a case control study, Mm -hmm. what you tend to find is that people who wear helmets tend to be less likely to have serious head injuries. So once you've got that finding, you then could go, well, that's great, that means head injuries are prevented by bicycle helmets. But the problem is you don't know for certain that that finding is valid. First of all, the numbers themselves may be wrong. So people, for example, are often vulnerable to something called recall bias. So they might misremember how often Mm -hmm. they wear a helmet and if they've had a head injury in particular. But that's an issue... More strikingly with things like uh, trying to understand the relationship between mobile phones and brain cancer. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a big tumour on the left-hand side of your head, then somebody comes along and says, hi, I'm doing a research study on brain tumours and mobile phones. Over the course of the last 10 or 15 years, do you think you've tended to hold your mobile phone up to your right or your left ear? You might be more inclined to remember your left ear. So Mm -hmm. recall bias can have an effect. But also, it may well be that people who wear helmets are less likely to have horrible head injuries but that might be because the people who wear helmets are systematically different to people who don't so they might be people who tend to be much safer cyclists Mm -hmm. in other ways they might be more likely to have other kinds of safety equipment for example they might be the people wearing those bright yellow covers over their backpacks and covered in the reflective scotch tape and more likely to have tons and tons of lights the ones that horribly blind you when you pull up behind the real ninja cyclists Mm -hmm. at the lights or they might just be really really safe cautious conservative cyclists Mm -hmm. so it might actually have absolutely nothing to do with the bike helmet of course they might also be wearing a bike helmet because they're tearing down a mountainside on a mountain exactly so it could go the other way it could be that people who wear bicycle helmets are people who know that they're doing something really dangerous pegging it down a mountain or just cheerfully going through red lights it may be that on some unconscious level people engage in what's called risk compensation behavior mm-hmm. so when they know that they're wearing a helmet they're I'm more invulnerable inclined. exactly they're more inclined to take risks similarly i mean there's some evidence that it's only one study and i'm not particularly convinced by it but one guy basically measured the distance that cars gave him the clearance that cars gave him when they overtook on trips when he was wearing a bike helmet and trips where he wasn't and reported in that one tiny study that when he wasn't wearing a bike helmet cars gave him a wider clearance because maybe they regarded him as being more vulnerable so there's all of that but then also you have to start getting into what happens on a population level and on a population level then you've got multiple different effects that can all get quite difficult to model so time and again when you look at what happens in a country when you say Okay. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. What are the head injury rates before and after wearing a cycle helmet becomes compulsory? You generally find that it doesn't seem to have much impact on serious head injuries. And... Why is that? Any number of different reasons. It could be, it's quite likely, that people are put off cycling. And actually, if people are put off cycling, what's the impact of that in a model, which is very difficult to build, on overall health? Because actually, the life years lost or the injury from being hit on a bike is probably overall substantially less than the phenomenal health gains of having daily exercise embedded in your routine, Mm -hmm. everyday activity. But also... If people are wearing bike helmets because it's illegal to not wear a bike helmet, are they wearing bike helmets properly or have they just got them on their head to avoid a fine and they're not clipped on properly or whatever? So it's a really interesting illustration, I think, of all of the different challenges of epidemiology, especially in cases where you can't do a randomised trial, Mm -hmm. which is, in a lot of cases, it's very difficult to do randomised trials. And that's epi. And I mean, I am an epidemiologist. It's not actually what I do in the daytime at the moment. At the the moment, I'm back to being a full-time doctor and I slip between the two. But um, I really highly recommend, if anyone's interested, you should come and do the MSc in Epidemiology at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And also, I think we should have a GCSE in Epidemiology. You know, I mean, I think this stuff should be in schools because it's it's news you can use you know it's these are the statistical and methodological techniques that underpin basically pretty much all of the big interesting headlines that people are worried about whether it's side effects or is this good or bad for your health or what's this horrible environmental exposure or what's really going to happen around this nuclear power Mm -hmm. station like all of that stuff basically comes down to epi and it's only at the end of the canon at the end of three books if you can endure it that you'd probably have the makings of much of a master's in epidemiology <laughs> i suspect but it's kind of you know it's a week's work and i'm and i'm surprised basically i'm surprised it's not more prominent in mainstream education and in popular culture than it is it's odd well we're quickly running out of time i've just got one more question and yeah this book is you know it's, it's a summation of ben's <laughs> writing career so far there's fantastic sections on statistics and evidence-based policy some great stuff on the various libel battles and lots of stuff on quacks but the one thing i want to know is ben how did you end up writing the introduction to the uh, guide to the romney higher than dimchurch railway Uh, I don't know. Oh, well, I think they, I think I'd been tweeting about how much I love them. So the Romney Heights and Dinchurch Railway, in case nobody knows, and if you're interested in days out like this, uh, nerdydaytrips.com is a crowdsourced map that I built with some friends of ridiculous days out. But the Romney Heights and Dinchurch Railway is an amazing narrow gauge railway that really takes you on a trip like it starts in Romney which is just near Folkestone you can walk along the sea pretty much and then you get on in Toy Town and it's this lovely little kind of kiddie station and there's these really cool little fun miniature steam trains and there's a man in a funny hat and you can watch him go toot toot and it's all really Disneyland you know Mm. and then you take off and it it was previously a working railway as a lot of these are and it trundles along and very very rapidly you know you're going through council estates with breeze block walls that haven't been finished falling over and abandoned mattresses and rusting broken washing machines by the side of the rails and then after all of that you come out onto this extraordinary windswept shale headland trundling across past the edge of the sea, past Derek Jarman's house in the converted railway carriage, until you're finally dumped at the base of this giant fuck-off two-reactor nuclear power station. And it is phenomenal. It's beautiful. And 
I sort of I raved about it a little bit, and then the the guy who runs the Romney High and Dimchurch Railway, like the little magazine, like the guidebook that you get mm-hmm. when you go on it, he wrote and he said, "Guy, you know, I saw how much you loved it, and we wondered, you know, would you write about it for it? Would you do the introduction?" And I said, "Yeah, sure." And then I wrote what I described just then, pretty much, and sent it in. And the guy who runs the railway wrote back and he said, "Do you know? I know this will sound funny, but..." I barely notice that nuclear power station anymore. So I've been talking to Dr Ben Goldacre and we've been talking about his book. I think you'll find it's a bit more complicated than that. And as we've barely scratched the surface, if you'd like to hear more from Ben, he's going to be talking at Conway Hall on Monday the 1st of December in the evening. Ben, what are you going to be talking about? Because it might not be stuff on this book. Uh, yeah, I'm going to do new stuff. So no Gillian McKeith, no drug companies, nothing like that. I'm going to do... I think I might do a rant about statins, which are kind of interesting and fun because they're the single most commonly prescribed class of drugs in the whole of the developed world, and yet the evidence is a mess. Or I might do uh, randomised trials in government policy, which is my new big obsession and um, something I did, a co-authored a cabinet office white paper on like a big fucking grown-up so that's the first of december next monday if you're listening to this on the day of publication so go along to that ben thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me again hey thanks for having me I'm Natalie Haynes, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Eric Schlosser is an award-winning journalist and a correspondent for The Atlantic Monthly. His work has also appeared in Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, The Nation and The New Yorker, among others. He's the author of three previous best-selling books, Fast Food Nation, Reefer Madness and Chew On This. And his latest is Command and Control, which was published about a year ago in hardback. It's just out in paperback now. And listeners may remember it's on Little Atoms episode 303, me talking to Eric about that book. It remains one of my favourite ever episodes of Little Atoms. So I'm delighted to have Eric back. And we're going to catch up on what's been going on in the in the last year of abject nuclear terror. So, um... Eric, thank you very much for joining me on the show again, first of all. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about why you're in London, first of all. What, you've been at an event today. What was that? I was at Chatham House, which is a think tank devoted to international and national security policies here mm-hmm. in London. Why were you there? What was actually going on? It was a gathering to discuss the risk of nuclear weapons today. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a woman who works at Chatham House who was talking about the human element in how things can go wrong in mm-hmm. nuclear weapons. And I restricted myself to the technological challenge of controlling these machines. Mm-hmm. So between the, the human error and the technical glitch aspects of the issue, it got pretty depressing. But we had someone from the Austrian foreign ministry who could offer a ray of hope to the audience because there is going to be a conference on nuclear weapons in Vienna in the second week of December. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really going to be a major international conference. I think there are 140 to 150 countries that will be represented, and they're going to be looking at the humanitarian impact of a single nuclear detonation as well as discussion of a treaty to ban all nuclear weapons. We'll come back to that conference a little later on. I want to talk about it in a bit more depth. But, I mean, I've mentioned, you know, the famous best-selling books that you've written in the past, but I guess essentially, you know, you're something of an underground journalist. You could describe yourself as a countercultural journalist. You're wearing a really nice suit today. You've been to Chatham Thank House, you. which is the, uh, the heart of the much. establishment in the UK. Thank you. I, it could e- if you saw me in my daily life, this could easily be Halloween, and I'm, <laughs> I'm dressed as a, a bald, middle-aged executive. I don't know, but that's not my, my normal style. Let's talk about what the reaction to the book has been like over the past year, then. Has it surprised you? It's been quite extraordinary, and I try very hard to be accurate in everything that I write. But I'm flawed and imperfect and a human being. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't know what the response to this book would be, uh, whether I'd made some huge significant error, whether I'd be attacked by the people within the nuclear establishment. And it's been, it's been pretty unnerving to find the book is true. I tried to make it accurate. And on one level, as a writer, I'm, 
I'm glad I didn't make any big mistakes. As a human being and as a citizen, though, I wish it weren't true. You know, it's like say it ain't so. But unfortunately, <laughs> with the exception of a handful of, you know, minor factual changes like having a town in Arkansas to the east of another town when it should have been west, the book has proven to be true. And it's the first thing that I've ever written that has gotten me invited into the corridors of power as opposed to threatened with lawsuits or attacked mm -hmm. or criticized. And I guess what that means is that the concerns of the book are shared by many people in power in the United States, that these weapons are always on the verge of being out of control, that they are the greatest national security threat the United States and the world faces, and that there needs to be much more attention to our nuclear weapons and to nuclear weapons just throughout the world. So I'm glad that my work can be useful, but as I said earlier, I'm unnerved that this is true. Let's talk about some of the things that have been going on around the world in the last year then since we last spoke. So today, it's the 24th of November today that we're recording this. And tonight, midnight tonight, was supposed to be the deadline of some talks that are going on to do with Iran's nuclear programme. So give us a bit of background on, on what's going on there, what those talks were and why they're yeah. happening. Well, the talks were to find a way for Iran to maintain a civilian nuclear programme but not have a program that would enable them to build nuclear weapons. And there are elements both in the United States and Iran that would like these talks to fail. Uh, there are hardliners in the United States who see the talks as a way of uh, camouflaging uh, Iran's effort to get nuclear weapons. And then there are those uh, in Iran, hardliners, who would like there not to be a rapprochement between the United States and Iran for there to continue to be an undeclared state of war. And I guess my own reaction to what happened today is I'm disappointed that there hasn't been a deal, but I would much prefer the two sides continue to talk rather than fight a real war. I feel very strongly Iran must not get a nuclear weapon. Uh, at the same time, I very much hope that Israel doesn't attack Iran. The United States doesn't attack Iran. So this is a very dangerous game mm -hmm. that's being played. I think ultimately it's in Iran's interest not to have nuclear weapons. My book is all about the challenges the United States has faced for almost 70 years in not being blown up by their own weapons. It's a major technological challenge. And uh, other countries that are less technologically proficient like Iran, Pakistan, India, I think are endangering themselves by having nuclear weapons. In addition to the technology, there's the human element. Can you manage your arsenal safely? Can you trust everyone in your chain of command? Do you have a country that's not going to have a coup, that's not going to have political instability. Uh, in Iran's case, they had major political instability just a few years ago and are connected to terrorist groups like Hamas and Hezbollah that uh, have deliberately targeted civilians and would love to have a nuclear weapon. Beyond that, from Iran's point of view, having nuclear weapons makes you a target of other countries that have nuclear weapons. Now, the United States and Iran have had a very bitter relationship since the late 1970s when Iran seized hostages, American hostages, and seized our embassy. But the United States has not attacked Iran with nuclear weapons in you know, all that time. If Iran were to have nuclear weapons and there were to be an international crisis, both the United States and Israel and perhaps Saudi Arabia, if they get nuclear weapons, would have pressure to launch first and attack them. So, one of the things I hope that comes across in the 21st century is that these are very dangerous machines. We don't want more countries to get them. What we want to do is we want to reduce the number among the countries that already have them, and we want to reduce that number as low as possible, and then maybe one day get rid of these machines altogether. But Iran getting a nuclear weapon would be a very destabilizing event, could lead to a new arms race in the Middle East, and this story could end very badly. We haven't actually said what's happened today. The deadline for the talks was supposed to be midnight tonight. It's now been pushed back till June 2015. Why would that have happened, Derek? Why do you think the talks have failed? I think that there's a great deal of mistrust. I think that Iran is trying to maintain as much of its nuclear capability as it can. And in the case of the American and other Western negotiators, there's a real desire not to be seen to have failed mm -hmm. at preventing uh, Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. So on both sides, there is this tension. And I just very much hope it can be resolved peacefully and not uh, with bloodshed.
the catalogue of near disasters and errors and, and mishaps that's in command and control, in some respects, you know, it's an argument for nobody ever having nuclear weapons. But at the same time, we could turn it on its head and say, if America, the most technologically powerful country in the world, can't keep its nuclear arsenal safe, who are we to say that Iran shouldn't have them? What do the Iranians actually want? What's, you know, their side of the argument in these talks? In international politics... Unfortunately, there is a certain prestige that is now linked with nuclear weapons. There is a sense that these are symbols of national power. And I don't think that's true. And one of the things I've tried to do in the book is pierce this whole notion of nuclear weapons as symbols and look at them as machines, look at them as weapons. I think that right now we have Russia boasting about its nuclear arsenal, threatening to turn the United States into radioactive ash, using language we haven't heard really since the late 1950s, early 1960s. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty hard to argue that that's a sign of national strength. On the contrary, Russia's very belligerent language about nuclear weapons brings to mind North Korea. Um, these are signs of, of national weakness. And I think that Russia would be much better off spending the billions and billions they've been spending on modernizing their nuclear arsenal on the health care and well-being of the Russian people. The life expectancy has been declining, and, and the same is true for the United States. Right now, the United States is facing an aging nuclear infrastructure in which all three legs of our triad, which are our nuclear submarines, our land-based missiles, our nuclear bombers, are all, all of them are aging, increasingly becoming obsolete, and Congress is going to be debating in the next few years whether to rebuild all three legs of our arsenal. The estimates are it will cost up to $1 trillion to replace our nuclear weapons systems. And when you visit the United States today and you visit Detroit, you visit Cleveland, and you see the incredible poverty in the United States, you have to wonder, couldn't we find a better way mm -hmm than to spend that $1 trillion than on weapons which even the late President Ronald Reagan argued should never be used. So we have to, in the 21st century, move away from these, this notion that these weapons offer prestige, that they offer national power. And the reality is there are very prosperous, very successful countries that don't have nuclear weapons and therefore are able to spend their money on things much more productive to society. You just mentioned the sort of belligerent talk of, of Russia, or perhaps more accurately, we should say, of Vladimir Putin. I'm not sure how much of an existential threat that is to the United States now compared to what it was in the Cold War. But at the same time, since we spoke, the situation between Russia and the Ukraine, for instance, has obviously deteriorated massively. What does that sort of thing mean for the existing nuclear arsenal of Russia? I hate to say this, but we are in a very dangerous moment. There has not been nuclear rhetoric like this in 50 years, at least. And you know, we don't want another Cold War. And again, it's not in Russia's interest for us to have another Cold War. The United States is capable of outspending Russia orders of magnitude on, on armaments. And the last Cold War ended because the United States did this extraordinary nuclear weapons buildup that Russia tried to match. And we don't want to go through that again. And, and one of the things that really concerns me, having looked at the command and control mechanisms of the last Cold War, is all of that infrastructure has aged considerably since the Berlin Wall mm -hmm. came down. Not only that, but the leadership in the military on both sides is very different. During the first Cold War, during the Berlin crisis, during the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, you had officers in charge who had familiarity with nuclear weapons dating back literally decades. And uh, by the time of the 1980s, these officers had been through the Berlin crisis, mm -hmm. been through the Cuban Missile Crisis. They were battle-tested in a sense. The officers in charge of the, of the nuclear arsenals of the United States and Russia right now haven't had to have their forces on high alert mm -hmm. during a crisis. That means there are all kinds of opportunities for mistakes, poor judgment to be made. Not only that, the technological infrastructure is greatly aged. Uh, Russia's early warning system has decayed enormously since the Cold War. That means that their ability to accurately ascertain if they're under attack has been degraded. In the United States, you know, I, I wrote about it in my book, and in the last year we've seen how aging our missiles are mm -hmm. and the communication system connecting our missiles. So we don't want another Cold War, and we really don't want 
the militaries of the United States and Russia to go on a heightened state of alert because, unfortunately, I just think they're not up to it at the moment, and that could end catastrophically. So this is unfortunate, and I feel that I hope in the next year or so the nuclear rhetoric can be toned down and that the relationship with Russia can be greatly improved between the United States but also between NATO and the EU. I think that ultimately we have many more common interests with Russia than we do have reasons to go to war, let alone fight a nuclear war, which would be a disaster. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny and I'm talking to Eric Schlosser and we're talking about the year gone by in the world of nuclear weapons. Eric, you've mentioned in the first part this conference, the Vienna Conference on the Humanitarian Impact of Nuclear Weapons, which you're speaking at. It takes place in December. This is the third one of those conferences, I think. So tell me a bit more about what that conference is, who runs it, what you anticipate happening there. Well, this conference is being run by the government of Austria. And Austria is a neutral country. And what the government of Austria realizes is that nuclear weapon effects have no respect for national borders. So you may be a nuclear-free state, You may oppose nuclear weapons, have none on your territory, but if others use them, you may greatly Mm -hmm. suffer the effects. I mean, fallout can be deposited hundreds if not thousands of miles away from the site of a detonation. In terms of the humanitarian effects, there is a realization now that there is no country in the world that has the emergency response capability to deal with the detonation of a nuclear weapon in a city, period. If a major city anywhere in the world is destroyed by a nuclear weapon, it will take weeks to provide adequate emergency care, medical care. First responders won't be even able to enter the area near ground zero because of the levels of radioactivity. So we haven't had a tsunami or an earthquake or a flood, any kind of natural disaster that approaches what the detonation of a nuclear weapon in a major city will bring. And the world has largely forgotten about this threat. I mean, I'm older. I remember the tail end of the Cold War. Everybody knew about nuclear weapons. Everyone was concerned about them. And and in my country, the biggest political demonstration in American history occurred in Central Park in 1982. And it was a protest against nuclear weapons and for the United States and the Soviet Union to end the arms race, which they eventually did. So there are 16, 17,000 of these weapons these machines right now in the world, ready to be used, potentially causing just humanitarian catastrophes. And yet the populations of the major industrialized nations are in denial or largely unaware, worried about other things. I don't feel apocalyptic. I've now spent seven years on this subject. I don't think we're doomed, but I'm concerned. And for those of us who like being here and care about our loved ones, this is an issue to educate yourself about and get involved with. I think it's the greatest existential threat that we face. Global warming is a huge threat, but the detonation of a nuclear weapon will be instantaneous and irreversible, and we just don't want that to happen anywhere. You mentioned that it's the Austrian government that are running this conference, but the previous two were in different places. The first one was sponsored uh, by the government of Norway, Mm -hmm. which is a NATO member. The second one was sponsored by the government of Mexico, and it's an attempt to bring together those countries that have nuclear weapons and those countries that don't into a discussion of this issue. This year, the United States will be attending for the first time, which I think is terrific. It's unclear if the government of Great Britain will attend. I'm hoping that they will. But they didn't attend the first two. Neither the United States or Great Britain has attended the first two. I do believe this is the beginning of a new anti-nuclear movement. It's just beginning to coalesce. And the government of Norway played a a major role in initiating it. Norway played a central role in the treaty to ban landmines, a central role in the treaty to ban cluster bombs, cluster munitions, both of which were very successful. And the thinking behind both of those treaties were these are weapons that disproportionately harm civilians. Mm -hmm. And nuclear weapons fit that category 
unbelievably so. In the United States, in the military, it's generally acknowledged that there are no military uses for nuclear weapons that conventional weapons can't also achieve. Nuclear weapons are most effective at killing large numbers of civilians. And you could make an argument that they are inherently uh, in violation of the Geneva Convention, which says you're not supposed to target civilians, you're not supposed to kill civilians in warfare. So there needs to be much more attention to this, and there needs to be an effort. First, reduce the number of these weapons worldwide, and then second, someday, get rid of them. In the past year since we spoke, has there been any progress on the things you talk about in the book in terms of changes to America's policy on its stewardship of its nuclear weapons? Or, well, I mean, I guess, has there been any other nuclear bombs dropped on runways? Yeah. Has there been any other Well, I, I can't since? remember when I, I saw you, but, but it was around the time I saw you that two of our top nuclear commanders were relieved of duty, mm-hmm. one of them for having a gambling problem and using counterfeit chips at a casino in Council Bluffs, Iowa, the other for going on a drunken bender in Moscow and trying to climb on stage with a Beatles cover band at a Mexican restaurant in Moscow. There are so many aspects of that that are just poor judgment. It's beyond belief. So what's happened in the last year is confirmation, and again, I I don't take great pleasure in this, of many of the themes of the book, that there are challenges and problems in the management of our nuclear arsenal. Quite a few of our missile officers were found cheating on their exams and trading advance exam answers on uh, text messages. This is basically classified information being texted in non-secure text messages. There also were officers, and this surprised me, it really did surprise me, officers caught using illegal drugs. In my book, I write about the high rates of marijuana use and drug use in the late 60s and early mm-hmm. 70s among officers with nuclear responsibilities, but I was generally surprised that people are still doing that. And I, I'm i a huge supporter of decriminalizing and legalizing marijuana, but I really don't think missile launch officers should be smoking pot on the job. And there also was a report that came out recently in my country that talked about a lot of the um, obsolete equipment that we have. And one of the most incredible is there's a very specific kind of wrench required to uh, attach and detach a nuclear warhead from a missile, and there was only one of them. And so they were continually FedExing this wrench in between missile bases. And I think FedEx is a great and reliable company, but if they had lost that one particular package, it would be disturbing to think that we couldn't take the warhead off the missile or put it on. So there has been real underinvestment in the infrastructure, the command and control infrastructure. 60 Minutes did a report, a big popular uh, television show in the States that I helped them put together about the aging infrastructure. They found that the computers in our launch control centers still rely on 8-inch floppy disks. Sometimes the doors don't close. And as I said, I'm a big supporter of abolishing nuclear weapons. But if you're going to have them, you've got to make sure the doors close. Mm -hmm. And you've got to make sure that the computers were built after 1978. And there's just been a, a real lack of attention, and it makes the system much more dangerous. And you've got more than one wrench. Yeah, <laughs> we now do. We now do. Just to finish off then, what next for you? You just mentioned you've been working on this area for seven years now. Yeah. It's the biggest area there is, as you said. It's the biggest existential threat to yeah. the world. Is this what you do now? This is what I'm doing now, but there is a limit to how much I'll do. I'm, I'm writing a big investigative piece right now on the threat of nuclear terrorism, on basically how easy or how difficult would it be for terrorists to get hold of a weapon or to get hold of the fissile material to build a weapon. I'm helping a documentary filmmaker make a documentary based on my book, Command and Control. And I'm going to stay active on this issue through the anniversary of the Trinity test and the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings which are in the summer of 2015. It'll be the 70th anniversary. And then I will have done my best, and I will return to work on a book I've been working on for many, many, many years on a somewhat less depressing subject, although not the most cheerful. I've been going into prisons throughout the United States and for many years been researching a book on the American prison system.
You've been listening to Les Latums. I've been talking to Eric Schlosser, and we've been talking about nuclear weapons, but his book, Command and Control, that I mentioned we talked about back in Little Atoms episode 303, is out now in paperback from Penguin. So, Eric, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me again. It's been Thanks brilliant. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.